Last week, we were ushered into a reality that uh, all too often we do not think about, and that is the reality that we have an enemy. As Christians, we have an enemy, and this is an ancient and a powerful enemy. He is uh, an enemy that hates us with a malice more intense than any human hate can be. He never sleeps. He is incredibly powerful. Uh, He has us under a constant surveillance. Uh, He is second only to God in this world in terms of power and authority. He has a huge and powerful army. And I believe that he or one of his associates is lurking right here in this room right now. If we had eyes to see this spiritual world, we would suddenly become very serious about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a child of light, and to engage this enemy. He is called also Apollyon in the Bible, dragon, Beelzebub, serpent, ruler of this world, tempter, slanderer, antichrist, power of darkness, and the devil. His ancient name was Lucifer, but now his name is Satan. And as we learned last week from 1 Peter 5, Satan is a created angel. He has not always existed. He was created somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. He was given incredible beauty and authority more than any other angel. He was He was glorious. He was beautiful. The only glory that was higher than his glory was the glory reserved for God himself. Ezekiel and Isaiah, the two prophets, describe how this glorious being looked up to the glory that is God's and aspired to it. Pride in his beauty and authority filled his heart. And he was not content with his standing as God had designed him, and he aspired to the status reserved for God alone. And if you take one passage in Revelation uh, this way, a third of the angelic hosts followed Satan in his rebellion, and God judged Satan by casting him out of heaven and sending him into this world. We live in his house. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of this world. He offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world in the temptation, and Jesus did not deny that he had the right to do so. All unredeemed humanity belonged to him. And death is his ultimate weapon, and uh, his goal is, in this world is to defame the name of God and to take as many people as he possibly can with him to hell forever. And I think this should lead us to ask the question as Christians, A, do I think about this nearly as much as I should? Satan is thinking about this every second of the day. He is not ignorant of what his goals are in this world. But as a Christian, do we realize the stakes and what is really going on in the world and in society, the values, the doctrines of demons, as Paul writes, the ebb and flow of society? Who is directing that and what lies behind that and how we are pawns in a sense in a much grander battle? I think most of us just try to make it through the day. And for, for most of us to think about, man, I just got to make it through the day and then also do battle with the sworn enemy of God, that's an overwhelming thought, isn't it? Like, I, I can't just, you know, pay my bills, much less battle Satan. And yet the testimony of Scripture and the words in Peter, we're doing a series of 1 Peter, by the way, if you didn't know, we've been in it almost all year, exhort us as Christians, to realize the battle that we're in and to realize that God has not left us 
powerless in this battle. He has not left us weaponless in this battle. But we need to make sure that we're fighting the battle rightly and in the power that alone comes from God by his spirit through the victory of Jesus on the cross. Amen? Amen. Okay. Therein lies our great hope. As we ended last week, he is a conquered enemy. Satan has already been defeated in the sense that the cross dealt him a fatal blow, and prophecy dictates where his eternity will be. But we live in this time between the actual defeat and the final culmination of it. A book I read, I'm going to recommend in a little bit, on this great illustration of this. It's like, when does lightning strike? When you see it or when you hear it? And there's always this gap, unless it hit your backyard, there's always this gap between the lightning itself and the thunder. And we live in the time between the lightning of the cross and the thunder of final judgment. I like that illustration. So, with that said, this message is about how we do the battle. I told you last week that that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we fight against this ancient foe and do so in victory? So let me read what Peter has to say about this, but I'm going to, in this message, kind of broadly speak from the New Testament about spiritual warfare. But let's begin with Peter. This is our text. I begin in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Peter writes this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we, we talked about Satan last week. This week, Peter gives four exhortations in his little theology of spiritual battle. And you'll notice that he says that we're to do four things, to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist him, and to know that others are suffering as well. Now, the last one, quickly, I'm just going to mention briefly, is the encouragement to know that we're not alone in the battle. You know, a really discouraged soldier in a battle is somebody that thinks he's the only soldier on the battlefield, uh, the only one that's suffering. And Peter says, your brothers and sisters are suffering all over the world. And certainly that is true to this day, right? All over this world, every single Christian is in this battle, suffering troubles and trials of various kinds, we ought to be encouraged with the fact that even in this room, we look around, that person next to you, three rows behind you, the dude standing up front, we're all in this same battle. We are in it together, and that is intended to encourage us. The other three fit more clearly in the New Testament's teaching on how to do battle with the enemy, and so I want to focus on these three. First of all, he says, be sober-minded, Okay? Be sober-minded. That is, the, the Greek word, it's the opposite of intoxicated. So if you think of somebody who has had too much alcohol to drink, their sensory abilities have been compromised, right? They are unable to process, they're unaware of everything going on around them. The word means to be clear-headed. If you're going to fight Satan, you better be clear-headed about it. Why? Well, this is why. Because he is so crafty. He is so uh, cunning. He is so devious. He is so intelligent. He is so powerful that the only way that we have a hope of having any victory in the spiritual battle is to be serious about it. To be serious about it. It's kind of like these videos you've seen, and there's lots of examples of this, circus videos and all of that. I saw a, a recently a bullfight from Spain or somewhere where the, you know, the, the stadium is filled with people and they're all drinking and carrying on frivolity and laughing about all of that, you know, the bulls and the bullfighters, and all, all of a sudden one of the bulls jumps, into the, jumps over the wall and right into the crowd. Everybody got very sober-minded in that moment. Everyone's running and, you know, they're screaming and trying to get away. They got very serious about the bull. And I think it's a picture of often in churches, you know, it's easy to be sort of the crowd. 
and to think I'm, you know, even maybe right now, here you are, and you're sort of, you know, watching the thing going on here, and, and you don't necessarily see any danger in what I'm talking about here, until all of a sudden you realize that the line is loose amongst the crowd. The bull is loose right here in the rows of this room, and in your homes, and in your marriages, and in your with your children, and all of a sudden you get really serious when you realize there is a danger and it is a real danger. It is an invisible one in the sense that he, li- he lives in the spiritual world, but his entire goal is to ruin your spiritual life. And when Christians see it that way, they get very serious about their spiritual walk. They get very serious about their spiritual disciplines. They get very serious about the stakes that are at play because Satan, Peter says, wants to devour you. Too often I think we live like there is no danger. We're lighthearted. There's, there's a certain kind of Christian, I think, that is that way, unfortunately. They're, they're just lighthearted about it. It's a part of their life, yes, but let's not get too serious about this stuff, right? To parent your children like there's no danger To lead your home or family like there's no real danger. To live close to worldly values like there's no real danger in that. I think it's like that line, famous line of the joker, why so serious? And the lighthearted joker Christian type looks at the person who's really serious about stuff with their Christian life and they think, you're just like, You're like overboard here. And the reason that we need to be sober-minded is because Satan is sober-minded. He is serious, more serious than any of us begin to imagine about what he is trying to do to destroy us. And the only way that we're going to win in this battle is if we have a grim determination to win it. So let me give you some practical tips on being sober-minded. Here's one. Sober-mindedness avoids two extremes when it comes to this battle. On the one side, there is the obsessing over it, okay? And maybe you've talked to people like this. There's a demon behind every bush. Every hangnail is a demon causing it. You know, my car didn't start today. There was a demon in the battery and la, la, la. That is... That is not a biblical theology on the way that the enemy... I wish all he did was mess with our batteries, Wouldn't that be great? I wish it was that easy. So that's the one extreme. On the other extreme, you have the people that are just ignorant of it and have no thought about the enemy and the fight and the battle and what's really going on here. So don't do either one of those. The middle of the road is to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. I would encourage you, because Jesus encourages us, to have a daily prayer about the spiritual battle. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, he synthesizes prayer down to the essence of it, and part of that prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? Evil. Some translations go, the evil one. Jesus inserts the spiritual battle into his model prayer. I take from that that we ought to, on a daily basis if we can, bring to mind in our prayer that there is an enemy. And in that prayer to ask God for deliverance. I also would encourage you, if you want to be sober-minded, avoid hanging out with people that are not. The lighthearted Christian that I mentioned earlier, they just sort of flit and flither around and they want to be around Christian things, but they don't take it very seriously. If that's your friend group, guess what? You're going to be exactly like that. If you find yourself in one of our small groups, A, report them to our small group director. Secondly, get a different small group. We need people in our life that take the battle seriously. Now, we don't take ourselves seriously. Okay, that's being boorish, you know, we just all walk around sober-minded. That's not what we're talking about. But we need to have people in our life who are also serious, that are in the battle, that understand the stakes. Build friendships with people like that. 
their iron can sharpen your iron in this way. So first of all, Peter says, you got to be sober. you got to be serious about it. Second thing he says is that we need to be watchful, okay? Be watchful. What is the most dangerous lion? It is the one you can't see, right? It is the one that you can't see. And lions are really good at prowling and sneaking up on you. That's their whole thing. They sneak up on you. If you're going to battle a lion, you've got to be on the lookout for the lion. You've got to be watchful for that lion. And I think what Peter is exhorting here is that we need to actually see the world through this spiritual lens and to avoid the kind of atheistic, naturalistic, secular perspective on reality that says the only, the only world that matters is the one that I can see, touch, and feel. The Bible says there is this world and there is another world. There is the spiritual world, which is as real as this world. But if we live like this is the only thing that matters, if we live materialistically, we will not have in our mind any fear or concern about somebody from the other world trying to destroy me. So the first thing we've got to do is to see reality biblically, to see the world the way Jesus did. And you, again, you look at the life of Jesus all the time. He's in confrontation with Satan and with demons. He didn't just see the world materialistically. He saw another world, the world he came from and the world that he is in right now. So can I just ask you, seriously, do you, do you think you're in a spiritual battle? Like, is that part of your core beliefs? I'll let you think about that. Satan is a master of disguises. Many of you had little Satans come to your door last night. (laughs) If only Satan arrived on our doorstep going, trick or treat, we'd be like, got you, I know exactly who you are. But we had, you know, we had people, little, little Satans last night. They came in all sizes and shapes. These teenagers, you know, when they go, trick or treat, you're like, really? You know, <laughs> you're disguised as a child on Halloween. So we get how disguises work. The Bible says that Satan is a master of, of disguises. He doesn't come the way that you expect him to come. So if you leave here going, we're going to really be on the lookout for Satan, and you're looking for the caricature of you know, the, 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 the horns and the pitchfork and all of that, you're never going to see him. In fact, I think we rarely see Satan. But boy, can you smell him. Satan stinks. You can smell him. It's hard to see him because he's such a master of disguise, but you can You can smell him. What do you smell when a church goes through a devastating split? What do you sort of smell about that? What do you smell when a brother or sister suddenly falls into some devastating sin? What do you smell in your own life when you feel that inner conflict between right and wrong and your conscience is engaged and you're struggling in some sort of way? Can you, you smell anything going on? You may not see the lion, but you can smell him. And I just wonder who here today is not really paying attention as I talk, and a year from now, you're in the devastating sin. And what we're talking about right now could save your spiritual life. I'm just going to add quickly another one here. We have to realize that the world that we're living in is not, it's not a, a fatality. It is, it is not, the causalities behind what is happening are not merely what you apparently see. That the enemy is actively shaping our culture and our society in directions that in his devious plans He intends to lead increasingly away from the glorious purposes that God has, even for, in common grace, human society. 
So what do you smell when you see something that God designed as glorious, like marriage, for example? What do you smell when you see marriage as God intended it being shaped in a way that doesn't glorify God's purpose for marriage? Like what's really going on there? Or what, what take gender, a, a, a thing this year, a big deal this year, gender identity. You look in Genesis 1, God made us in his image. Male and female, he created them. Gender, by God's design, is part of our imaging of God. God knows that. Satan knows that. What do you smell? What do you see really going on as gender identity is taken away from biological plumbing? What's behind that? Should we be surprised? Pick anything that God, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, anything that God put into this world to be a reflective glory of himself, Satan is going to want to diminish it and twist it and corrupt it. Remember, he is a parasite. Satan has never painted a pretty picture in his entire life. He can't make anything beautiful. He was beautiful at one time. Now he is twisted and perverted and corrupted, and he is a parasite on the good things that God has done, no matter where it is. And you could just predict where he is going to put his twisting, perverting finger. What's behind that? I think being watchful as a Christian means that we see what is really going on in our world around us. And within our church, and within the sort of the doctrinal world around us, and all of these things that are all the time in flux, but constantly, you pick, look at human society, look at human history, you look at Greece, you look at Rome, you look at Western civilization, the United States of America, it always follows the same pattern. It is, it is Satan and Eve in the garden. It is order to disorder. And Rome was corrupted from within, and it fell. And Western civilization is being corrupted from within. And guess what's going to happen? You know, it's, it's history 101. You just see the same patterns at work. He, it's like Satan doesn't come up with any good ideas. He's like, man, let's just go. It's like the football team. It's, it's you know, power plunge right. It works every time. He just keeps going and going at that play that works. And we just see the same patterns over and over again. We have to smell him out. We have to be watchful. And the third thing that Peter says here is that we need to resist him. And this, I want to spend the rest of time on this one. Because if there is anything that the New Testament calls us to oh, repeatedly, when it comes to how we do battle with the enemy, it is that we are called to resist him. Peter says it this way, resist him firm in your faith. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And those are great admonitions there, but I feel a little bit just looking at those like the boy who has the bully at school and dad goes, you stand up to him, right? And the boy walks away going, but I don't know, how. what does that mean? You know, and the dad's like, okay, you You know, whatever he's saying, you know, uh, maybe I'm not encouraging that behavior, by the way. But it's one thing to say, you need to stand up. It's another thing to actually be equipped to do so. So how do we resist the devil? And now I'd like to pull in the larger teaching of the New Testament and give some helpful uh, strategies. Number one is to understand Satan's strategy. Satan has strategies that he uses against us. Here's 2 Corinthians 2.11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. If you're going to, I'll go back to the sports illustration because it just naturally comes to my mind. But if you're, if you're on defense in football and you wanna, you're going to you know, compete against an offense, you have got to understand their plays. It'd be great to know their playbook. Imagine if you knew the playbook, man. You could look at the, at the way they're setting up and you're like, I know what play they're running here in advance. And now we can 
do our defense to counter it. That's essentially what we're called to do with Satan. And Satan, Satan's got like a one-page playbook. I'm simplifying here, but he has three basic things that he does. And I take these from a Puritan named Bevington, who summarizes Satan's strategies as deception, temptation, and accusation. The three things that Satan does in his war, deception, temptation, and accusation, let's take those in that order. So let's talk about deception. And on this level, we see that Satan is aiming right here for the mind. Deception is about the mind. Now, Satan is not omniscient, okay? He does not know everything. In fact, I don't think that Satan knows our thoughts. I recently read a blog about this, and there's some debate about whether Satan can read our minds or not. I don't think that he can. However, for thousands of years he studied human behavior, I suspect Satan knows our thoughts before we think them, because he can anticipate. He, I mean, he's dealt with, how many Steve DeWitt types has he dealt with in the thousands of years of human history? I'd like to think I'm unique, actually. <laughs> or take your personality type or your background and all of that. He knows how we think. He knows how to suit certain deceptions to the way that we look at things. And now I need to make another tangent here if I can, okay? So if you're following me here, what are Satan's devices? I'm doing a tangent under deception here because it's important, I think, uh, to realize that uh, the causalities of sin, I don't want anybody here leaving here or some little kid going home and doing something wrong and Pastor Steve said Satan made me do it, right? Because that is not true. God never gives us a pass because of something that Satan did to lead us into sin. We are responsible for our behavior. Adam and Eve clearly were responsible for their behavior in spite of Satan's temptations in that. So when we think about the causality of sin, uh, theologians talk about three influences that cause us to sin primarily. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, so let's talk about these three. The world. The world is, as Beeky calls it, human nature apart from God. It is society, it is human civilization, it is mankind trying to define reality, find meaning apart from a relationship with God. It is mankind in rebellion against God and the sort of structure of value and life that it creates. We live in this world. It is a world set apart from God, in rebellion from God, and yet it influences us, don't we? Or doesn't it? This world around us. We have the flesh within us. The flesh is the sin nature that we are born with. The flesh is that thing that I see at work when I tell my daughter, don't do that. And she has a look on her face. And you, can just, you can just see the moral wheels spinning within her mind. What is she going to do? That sin nature rising up within her. She got it from her mother. No, no. I actually believe it comes from the Father, which is why Jesus was born of a virgin. But I digress now. Okay, so... The flesh is set apart from God. We all have that sin nature that we are born with. It leads us to sin. And then you have the devil. But realize, if there was no devil, we still would sin. We would sin because of the influence of the world around us. We would sin because we are sinners. It is our nature to sin. Now here's the difference with the third in the world of flesh and the devil. The devil uses... The world and our sin nature against us and is the master of manipulating us using those influences against us. Genesis calls him crafty more than all the other animals, all the other beings in the world for a reason. He is incredibly crafty. And he manipulates the power of our sin nature 
and he deceives us by hiding primarily, hiding a good desire, hiding a, like a bait, fishing bait, that hides, now some of the men are paying attention, thank you, uh, hides the hook under the feather if you're trout fishing. The trout only sees the feather. The trout only sees the desirable thing. Is there anything wrong with feathers or worms? Is this a sermon against worms? No. But I'm pointing out that Satan is the master fisherman who hides the hook in the worm. And he takes even good things, good things that God made, and he hides the moral consequence within the desire, and he deceives us by appealing to either our corrupt nature or even our higher nature, but pursuing or gratifying that desire outside of the will of God. Another thing he's a master at doing is he loves to tempt us to small sins loves to tempt us towards, to deceive us into thinking this is only a small sin. Now we think Satan just wanted me to do the small sin, but Satan doesn't care about the small sin. Doesn't care about the small sin. His aim is always the large sin. And he knows that if he can get us to compromise on the small sin, he has now a toehold in our mind and heart that he can enlarge towards the great sin. And that series of compromises that each one doesn't seem like that much more of a compromise leads us, you know, think of David and Bathsheba as an example of that. I don't have time to get into it. It's a long sermon already. But um, you think about how David fell with Bathsheba. It was some small compromises that led to the big one. Or to think about what he did with Eve. He made eating that apple desirous because it would give her moral enlightenment and she would be like God. Now, why did Satan know that that would be a really tempting thing? Because it is the very temptation he himself fell from heaven with, that he gave into himself. What did he hide from Eve? Death. He gave Eve an apple and he took away paradise. How's that for a great exchange, right? And you see, that's the way that he operates. And I wonder if right now, if you could survey your life, is there currently a deception possibly going on in your life where maybe even a good desire is somehow being presented to you fulfilled outside of the will of God, or a small sin that you're maybe willing to do because you think it's a small sin. Do you see the strategy of the enemy? Okay. It is deception. He is deceiving the mind. Here's the second, is temptation. And temptation is not so much the mind as it is the affections or the desires that level inside of us where James describes in James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And here now, Satan, we find, is using the flesh, the sin nature, to and giving us an opportunity to have that desire satisfied, again, but outside of God's will. And let me just give you an example of this, and I almost feel like I need to read it because I'm on a subject that I don't want to misspeak on, okay? So if you don't mind, maybe I'll just do that, especially here in our first service. A drive down the interstate or five minutes of surfing online proves the point of Satan's plan. Did God give us sexual desire? Yes. Is it good within his will? Yes. Is the human body beautiful by God's design? Yes. Did God make us, especially men, to desire the female body? Yes. Is it good and holy within marriage? 
Yes. Did God devote a whole book of the Bible to it? Yes. Then why is the interstate filled with pictures of other men's future wives with their clothes mostly off? And the reason is that Satan is a parasite. And he takes what is good and holy and high and he twists it and tempts us to satisfy a good God-given desire in an unholy way. That is how he does it. And do we see what is really going on as we drive down the interstate or we get on that website and the pictures are on the side even as you're trying to read the article about, you know, whatever. They just fill the sides with things asking you to look and click. Why? Because that's the way he operates. That is the way that he operates. And this is true in so many desires. Financial security, love, friendship, food, authority, family, health. You pick a desire and Satan has a sinful temptation perfectly suited to it. It's how he operates. And the third is the accusation, okay? So we have deception, temptation, accusation, and the accusation is on the level of the conscience. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, and he is especially good at defeating Christians by keeping them from fully accepting the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in their life. He binds us to the past, the failure, the sin that we have confessed and tried to receive the grace of God that we never seem to be able to get over what happened in the past. And he continues to accuse our conscience and to keep us in a state of being defeated. Again, like the football games where you see the team, like the Miami game last night, they, you see the team that is losing and they do eight backwards laterals and they win in a miracle at the end and what are they doing they're running all over the field in joy i think that's the way christians should be but all too often we look like them before the amazing play right oh oh, oh, ah. you know god can't use me because of what has happened oh woe is me and they don't believe there is new life found in christ We fail to fulfill the words of one of our favorite songs. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. All right, so I've had kind of a tangent under a tangent here. I hope you're following along if you're able to here. How does Satan operate? Three primary ways, temptation, deception, and accusation. How are we to fight against him? We are to resist him. But we begin resisting him by understanding how he works. So that's the first thing. Here's the second way we resist him. Is to fight Satan's tactics with spiritual weapons. With spiritual weapons. Now that we know how he operates, how do we then resist him? And the Apostle Paul actually gives very clear teaching about the weapons that we have available to us. And I'd like to read now this famous section, Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says, describing this spiritual warfare. He says, therefore, in this battle, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand, there's resist language, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having, now here comes the weapons, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, 
making supplication for all the saints. Okay, so it's almost like Paul is exegeting Peter here because Peter just basically says, resist him in the faith. Paul gives the sort of bigger picture here of how we do that. And I just want to walk through these weapons and to point out to you that if you understand how Satan operates, why these weapons that we're wielding against him are ideally suited for what he's throwing our direction. Okay, so to go through these, the belt of truth, and by the way, we have a picture here, and I tried to find the baddest dude I could find online. Okay, so that was the, that's the baddest guy I could find in a Roman soldier outfit, which by the way, when Paul writes Ephesians, he's chained to a Roman soldier. Probably not in, you know, that's like go to battle kind of attire, uh, but he would have been, you know, Roman soldiers were all around him. He would have been seeing this kind of thing every single day. And he just describes now the fully armored, and that's what the, that's what the, the Greek word means, to be fully armor, armored. This is like, you know, sort of Schwarzenegger with grenades and guns and every, you know, knives out of every pocket. That's kind of the picture here is the way that we're to go to war. I'm appealing to the masculine side of the audience here now. Uh, fully armored. But the ones that he lists here, he says, first of all, the belt of truth. Now, how does Satan operate? Deception. He deceives us. He is a liar. He lies to our conscience. He lies to our desires and our flesh. What do we wield against him? He says, the belt of truth. And this truth is the truth as we are taught in God's word. It is the truth as seen in the example of Jesus. It is the truth of God. And what exposes a lie? The truth. The truth. Satan can't handle the truth. He says, secondly, breastplate of righteousness. And this could be the righteousness that is ours through justification. It could be the righteousness of the integrity of life that flows from being declared righteous in the eyes of God. We're not sure which it is. But what does the breastplate protect? The core, right? The core. And what needs to protect us more than anything? It is the righteousness of Christ and our righteous standing found by faith in him. You, you try to go to battle without that understanding of my identity in Jesus by faith, and the core is easily... We need to know who we are in Jesus, standing in his righteousness alone, in Christ alone. Good place for amen in there somewhere, okay? Just suggesting it. He says, thirdly, these shoes, I call them boots, gospel boots. It's a little obscure here, but metaphorically, how does a, how does a soldier stand firm? you got to have some boots that are giving you some traction, right? How does a Christian march into enemy territory with the gospel or just to broad, metaphorically bring in, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? It is the gospel that we stand in. That's what gives us our footing. We better understand that gospel, believe it with all of our hearts, because if we don't, it's like we're standing on ice, right? That soldier is easily pushed away. I like this one, the shield of faith. This is what Paul, uh, Peter emphasizes, stand firm in the faith, which Paul says this faith, this shield, is what extinguishes the darts of, of the enemy. And go back to deception and temptation and accusation. All of those that Satan is shooting at us, all of them in some way have to do with us taking and appropriating the promises of God and believing them. So if I am dealing with a guilty conscience, something that I have confessed and I have, you know, I've given over to God and here comes now the accuser against me, my faith shield says that is not true. I am not going to believe what my mind somehow is thinking right now. Where that comes from, we're not sure, but we know who's behind it. I am believing what God says to be true. That if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Take that, Satan. Right? Bam, like that. (laughs) 
the shield of faith refuses to believe his lies. If Eve would have applied that in that moment, did God really say, Eve, that you shouldn't eat of it? He knows if you do, you'll be like him. If Eve would have applied that, what would she have done, that shield of faith? She would have said to Satan, God is good. And I'm not going to believe you questioning him. And he loves me. And he wants his best for me. And that means not eating the tree is better for me, no matter what you say. The helmet of salvation. They would wear these helmets because in that day they had battle axes. And, you know, if you could get on there and bash the guy's head, you were half the way to winning the, the fight. The helmet of salvation, this is our assurance of our salvation. We are confident in this standing that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a protection. And then finally, the sword of the Word of God. The only offensive weapon listed here is, is, the, is the sword of the Word of God. And you could ask why. I don't know why that is, but we do know that this is what Jesus wielded. Satan comes to him three times with temptations in the wilderness. Each time, the Son of God does, he doesn't say, I'm the Son of God. Your measly temptations mean nothing to me, you know. Uh, your Jedi skills, I beyond these. That's not what he says, even though maybe that was true. What he says each time is he quotes God's word back at Satan. Satan twists the words of God. He quotes it accurately back at him. What do you do when you're facing a temptation? What do you do when that click is so available? What do you do when there's that woman, not your wife, just in your mind? What do you do when the opportunity to lack integrity financially or whatever, it's there. How do you handle that moment? I think most of us go, <sighs> we just sort of breathe, 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 it'll go away, take it away, go away. And we don't employ what the, what the Word of God can do for us. Here are some good verses, my dear flock, to have at the ready. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 1 John 4. Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his own son but, grac- but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's good, he's good, no matter what you say, Satan. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things in the world. Luke 10.27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. These and many others have those at the ready. And I'll throw an extra one out that I heard from John Piper that has been a help to me. When you are under a temptation and you are just like under it, it's almost like you can't help yourself. You're just feeling like, you know, you've quoted your verses, you've done all your things, and you just feel yourself being drawn towards this sin. Bring to your mind as visibly as you can Jesus hanging on the cross, blood pouring from him, the agony of that. You think about Jesus on the cross, and I've incorporated that in my own walk. It is hard to feel the power of a temptation when you are actively, visually thinking about his sufferings for sin. There's something about that. It just like eliminates it. I throw that out to you for your benefit. Now, I want to give a couple resources here, okay? Real quick. First of all, if you're like, hey, you got a good book to recommend, I'd recommend this one, Fighting Satan by Joel Beakey. It's not very big, see? Not intimidating. Really, really good. Just came out this summer, and I appreciate it very much. If you want to read the classic on it, it would be this one, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I was at a conference with some of the guys that I really like, and I was amazed how many guys on the panel were quoting from this book, and I thought, i got to get this book. 
And I just want to summarize, this, the, here's Thomas Brooks' 10 remedies against Satan's devices. I share this with you just to resource you. Here's what he says. Number one, walk by the rule of Scripture. Number two, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Number three, pursue heavenly wisdom. Number four, resist Satan's uh, first overtures immediately. Number five, strive to be filled with the Spirit. Number six, remain humble. Seven, maintain a strong and constant watch. Eight, maintain communion with God. Nine, fight Satan in Christ's strength, not your own. And ten, pray much. And remember, we're all in this battle together. There's nobody in any of these rows or on this stage right now that somehow has come to a place where now, boy, the battle, I'm good. I've won. Like, I'm totally over it. There's no temptation for me. We are all in this together. Can we collectively say amen? amen. All campuses, amen? Amen. And to realize then, that ought to give a kind of grace to one another, to realize that we're all soldiers in this fight, that sort of band of brother camaraderie, and to come alongside. And, and no doubt right now, we've got some of our soldiers here who took a very serious wound this week. You failed in a battle severely this week. Some are bleeding on the battlefield. Some are casualties in the hospital right now. I hope that God will engage all of us in the battle. That we might not fall to the devil's schemes and wiles. And again, I want to encourage you. We don't fight for victory. We fight, we fight from victory. We fight from the victory that Satan has already lost and Jesus has won. And that is our encouragement. We're not fighting in a battle that we're ultimately going to lose. We are fighting a war that we will ultimately win. And that gives us encouragement. Okay? It's like watching a football game on DVR, right? You know, you... And on your way home, somebody says, isn't it great? Your team won. And you're like, oh, I was not wanting to know that. And then you get home, and you're like, I'm going to watch the game anyway. And, you know, your team wins in the end, but you want to watch the game. So this is not a Bears game. Um, <laughs> and they're down two touchdowns in the first quarter. They're down four touchdowns in the, in the, in the, at halftime. But you're not sweating it. Why? Because you already know what's going to happen. Now you still cheer and you get excited and all of that, but you know in the end there is a victory that is coming. And that's the kind of battle we're in. It doesn't mean that we take it easy. It doesn't mean that we sort of are passe about it, but it does mean that we are confident in an ultimate victory that Christ has accomplished for us. And that's how we do the battle. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's grace.